0: You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now, let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. I am Brian Levinson, and today we get to talk with Chris Grant. Chris is someone who I've known for over 10 years, and over those years, we've had many conversations about culture, about how organizations are set up for success, how they develop their talent, what can they do to develop leadership and cultivate leadership within an organization. Chris has worked with the Atlanta Hawks as the assistant general manager. He's worked with the Cleveland Cavaliers as both their assistant general manager and their general manager. And today, he works in the front office as a scout for the San Antonio Spurs. So he has worked with a lot of different organizations throughout the NBA, the National Basketball Association. And he's gotten to work with and serve a number of coaches. And he'll talk about his experience working with coaches uh, throughout this conversation. He's also developed relationships with a lot of coaches All over the league. So Chris is someone who's been in the weeds with some of the best performers in the world. Uh, He's worked with some teams that have competed for NBA championships. He's helped build teams. He's just seen it from a lot of different sides. And he'll also talk about starting out in video and really being with the coaching staff. So Chris is somebody who's extremely curious, extremely thoughtful about how he thinks about not just creating a team, but... How do you develop values? How do you develop a process that can help a team be successful? And he sat in a lot of different chairs and worked in a lot of different capacities with some of the best sports organizations in the world. So Chris is a really thoughtful guy. He is very intentional with how he thinks about things. He's intentional with the words that he uses. And he'll talk about his upbringing and how his parents were very intentional with the messaging that they gave to him. And also just the actions and how they led by example and showed him what hard work looked like. He'll talk about the community he grew up in and how that has impacted him. And he'll also talk about his college experience. And he has an amazing college experience where the University of San Diego has actually produced 25 people that are working in the MBA in some capacity. So he's really been in some amazing environments, some amazing cultures, and he really has done a lot of homework and a lot of research on what makes successful organizations successful. So I know you'll love this conversation with Chris. As I said, he's been around some of the best performers in the world. Uh, He's been around some of the best people at their craft and what they do. And he's somebody who I've always just enjoyed talking with. So you'll like this conversation. It's very conversational. And Chris and I just go back and forth on some of the things that we believe in and how what we believe in impacts the jobs that we do. So, before I start this conversation with Chris, just a quick reminder uh, if you enjoy this conversation, if you could forward it to some friends, if you could post it on your social media Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn. Instagram, wherever it is at your social, we would really appreciate it. And if you really like it, go over to iTunes and just give us a review. It means the world to us. It really helps us as we try to build this thing out. And we constantly are trying to bring in great guests and try to bring in people that you will find interesting so that you can listen to them on your way to work or when you're working out or wherever it is that you are digesting your podcast. So thanks a lot for the support and I appreciate all of you for listening. It means the world to me when I talk to somebody who said, yeah, I really like this episode or this is really interesting when this person said X or Y or Z. So continue to show me the love and I will do my best to bring this uh, in the best form that I know how. Uh, But without further ado, I'd love to present to you Chris Grant. And as we go deep with Chris, I encourage you to think about how you can be intentional with your life and how you can develop into the best version of yourself. Chris, really excited to talk with you on the podcast. Uh, We've known each other for a while, uh, and you're someone who I've had on my list and said, hey, I want to get with Chris. Um, We'll get into when we met and uh, when I used to have a lot more hair and you used to comment on my hair. Uh, But but before we do that, uh, I'd love for people just to get an idea of where your story started. Uh, I know you, you grew up in, I think, San Diego. So take us to sunny San Diego and and for people that are, you know, getting into fall weather here, just have that image of sunny San Diego where it's 75 and 80 and sunny every day. But bring us to childhood. What was it like for you as a kid? Uh, and let's just start there.
1: Yeah. No, Brian, I, I really appreciate being on. Thank you for, for asking me to come on the show with you and do the podcast. Great. So, yeah, I, I, um, my wife is actually from San Diego and I went to school there. But I actually grew up in a small town in Northern California, South Lake Tahoe. California. And, uh, I, you know, I was really really lucky. I was really lucky in a lot of ways, uh, as a child, um, mainly be, you know, through sports, there was just fantastic coaches. Um, I played football and basketball growing up. We just had awesome coaches at the minor league or or Peewee level, I should say, and then all through high school. And so, uh, it was a small town of 20 to 25,000 people. And everybody knew each other, so it was almost like the town raised you, versus and, you know, on top of your parents as well. So everybody knew everybody. Um, it was a kind of place where you didn't lock your car doors, you didn't lock your your homes, and and uh, you know, really kind of a middle class, hard working community based on tourism because it is Lake Tahoe a beautiful place uh, to, to grow up. So much stuff to do. So. Um, I have fond, really fond memories of, of growing up there and still very close to a lot of people that I played sports with uh, and went to school with from elementary school on.
0: So I was wrong about where you grew up, uh, but, but Tahoe, <laughs> did you ski?
1: I did. Yeah, I skied probably, even though it was during basketball season. I, at one point, I probably skied about 100 times a year.
0: Wow. So did you compete in skiing or that was just for fun?
1: No, it was just for fun. I was probably a little too tall to, you know, there's not a lot of six, eight guys going down the ski hill. So, uh, but I, I love all the, you know, the snowboarding, the skiing, the water sports, all that stuff outdoors. Absolutely love. And it's, it's fun because uh, we take our family back to Tahoe during the summers. And now my kids, um, you know, get to experience some of those things as well.
0: You mentioned the community really helping to raise you. Uh, was there a coach that really had an impact on you from a young age? It sounds like you you did have some great coaching. You mentioned that. Was there a coach that impacted you from a young age? I mean, th-
1: there were several. I, I think, obviously, everyone that's successful, you have a strong support system that uh, starts with your parents, which I was very lucky to have. Uh, and then, you know, I think as, as an athlete, um, you also have to have – um strong support structure and so uh, i had a number of coaches on the football side Uh, i started playing football much younger than basketball on the football side third and fourth grade but then when i got in high school there was a head coach of the high school team a guy named tom orlich uh, who went on to be extremely successful at a number of different high schools and now as an assistant coach with uh university of stanford he was um he was outstanding he just held a very high bar not just for me but for a lot of the guys that played on on his teams through the years and really pushed all of us to be the best players that we can be, but more importantly, be the best people we can be. So I I was really fortunate to be around coaches that were were coaches for the right reasons, because they wanted to help young people grow and learn to be better humans, not just better basketball players. And he was a huge, huge factor there, as was Coach Egan, um, Coach Hank Egan, who was my head coach at University of San Diego where, where I went to college. And he, he was obviously coach myself and, and Mike Brown, who's been a head coach, David Fisdale, who's now a head coach at, at, uh, for the Memphis Grizzlies. Uh, he was actually Coach Popovich's head coach at, at Air Force when he was head coach at Air Force, Air Force and Pop was at Air Force. And he's another person that just cares so much about people and helping people grow uh, that I was just I was just lucky to be in, you know in the right place at the right time.
0: I want to get your perspective on this because you're really talking about transformational leadership. You're talking about the idea of helping a person develop from a humanistic side. You're in pro basketball now. How much of it in pro basketball do you think is about transforming versus the idea of transactional leadership, which is, you know, just do your job. I think because at the high school level, I think most people are in agreement like, yeah, you want somebody who's going to help develop human beings at the college level. Uh, I think you start to get a mixture of some people that will say, well, this is a business and you're on a scholarship, um, and others that will say, hey, we're still trying to transform humans. So I'm curious what you think about the pro level and the notion of, is the job of a coach still to help develop humans or is it to help develop players?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, it's a good question. It's probably a combination of both. I think regardless of the NBA, I think pro sports – we we have some really good coaches in pro sports. Like when you look across the landscape of pro sports right now, there's some really dynamic leaders of people, and I think great leaders, good leaders, great leaders, help develop other leaders. So they're not transactional, as you're you're talking about. And, you know, transactional and leadership just don't seem like two words that fit very well together, but they are transformational, and they. Um, You know, these coaches, whether it be in the NBA and Major League Baseball or in the NFL, these coaches care about the development of the person and the player. But they also know to be a great team, you have to develop the person just as much as you have to develop the players. And and in many cases, probably more. So I think a lot of um, not to say that every coach in pro sports is like that, but I think we have some great coaches in pro sports right now that are doing just that.
0: Yeah. I want to get your perspective because I think it's a really interesting concept because I've been around pro coaches who who they really believe like, hey, like this guy's an adult now. Like it's it's up to him to, you know, do his job. And the word do your or the phrase do your job. Let's just use the NFL because it's it's really I mean, there's probably like three or four teams that that's what they are always talking about. That's their that's their mantra is do your job. So. For me, the easiest way to understand transactional and transformational, and you may have better insight to this than I do, is the Pete Carroll uh, versus the Bill Belichick. And from the outside looking in without knowing either of those guys or, or spending time with either guy, you know, it looks like the Pete Carroll of the world is like, hey, I want to develop humans. If we develop the human, then we're going to develop the athlete. And you're here, to, we're helping you to just be the best version of yourself. Like these are phrases that they use in Seattle, whereas... Bill Belichick, the the vocabulary that they're using is very transactional. It's like, Hey, be in the right spot at the right time, you know, show up on time, like do your job. Um, and so I understand, like, I agree with you. I think leadership is about transforming people to help them get from where they are to where they want to go. And that can show itself in a lot of different ways. But I'm curious to hear you riff on this idea of like, let's just use the NFL as an example, a, uh Belichick where at least from the outside looking in it seems like very much a transactional relationship versus a Pete Carroll which at least looks like transformational and by the way those are probably two of the most successful highly regarded coaches uh in 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 sports
1: yeah it's really interesting um you have two drastically different styles and um with, with obviously fantastic results on both sides. Um, I, I don't know that in the end that they're necessarily different, meaning there's certainly looks like in New England that there's development of people going on. I mean, you just look at Tom Brady, for example. I, I mean, that, that's a pretty good indicator right there uh, in general. Um, so even though maybe they describe and go about it in two different ways, There's different ways to to lead people and to connect with people. Uh, They they certainly seem to be getting um, some pretty strong results on both sides in helping people develop. And, you know, without really being inside those camps every single day, it's hard to see. You know, Seattle, Pete Carroll and his style, I mean, he's pretty appealing, right? I mean, he looks like it's really fun to play for, like, you know, especially when they made that run to the Super Bowl and won. I mean, there's, there's a good energy and excitement there. And on the other hand, you know, in New England, you know, you, people don't necessarily say, oh, well, you know, it's a tough environment or whatever to play. But they also love the guy and everyone that go there, goes there is pretty successful. Um, so it's hard to say really what it's like until you're on the inside, but both places seem to be getting similar results in the end.
0: Yeah. I mean, that part's clear and it has been interesting. It's been interesting to watch because new England, if you don't fall in line, they're quickly, you know, they're quick to ship you out. Um, and to your point, I think both coaches are respected within their locker rooms. I think part of it is also the authenticity piece. Like Mm -hmm. Bill is Mm going to be him and he's gonna be consistent with who he is and he's gonna be attention to detail. He's going to be, you know, watching film. It's, it's, going to be constant and consistent. And Carol's, you know, when he steps on that field, he's going to bring energy. He's going to bring enthusiasm. You know, I think consistency and authenticity uh, matter immensely when it comes to leading humans.
1: Yeah. And accountability, being authentic is a big part of leadership. And, part of helping guys people grow is giving them a roadmap of where to go and allowing them to take ownership in that that that's not that doesn't mean they get to escape accountability and and doing their job so to speak right so um, there's there's different ways to get to those places but if you're not authentic if you're not honest if you're not real if you're not accountable it's going to be hard to build an infrastructure that people can grab onto from a leadership perspective.
0: Absolutely. And I think about like the alcoholic, for example, who, if you want to make behavioral change for the alcoholic and transform them, like you have to hold them accountable and sometimes be very difficult with them and, you know, not, um, you know, not let them get away with certain things. So, um, you know, I think, when when you can empower people, whether it's to do their job or to be the best version of themselves, even though that has different meanings and connotation, it still is saying, hey, we're going to hold you accountable to being the best version of you. Hey, we're going to hold you accountable to doing your job. And I just think that there's more than one way to eat a Reese's. So there's lots of different ways to go about doing it. But I think to your point, the Carol way is appealing because I think a lot of us would love to have that. But I think so is the monotonous, boring, you know, Making sure that we're always consistent doing it a certain way. So I think we often can get wrapped up in um, the uh, personality of it rather than the competence. And I think competence always trumps uh, everything else. And if you're a competent leader, that can show its It can show itself in a lot of different ways.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, there's a good line there, right? Is it is it style or substance? Yeah. You know, so which which one, right? Are you more concerned about what the style is or are you more concerned about the substance. So, um, you can have both, but it's hard to, to choose just to do style and have any you know, any original honest feedback in a conducive environment.
0: We fall for style, right? When you, when you're evaluating <laughs> players, like we fall for style, whether a guy has long arms or, you know, can, can, you know, go compete off the dribble and do things or move his hips a certain way. Like, we all fall for style, and that doesn't mean that style also doesn't have some substance, right? Like all those mm-hmm. things also are, are important, but I think we can get um, tricked by style sometimes and, and and miss out on on substance. Uh, I want to go back to the substance of your of your life and and just unpack a little more about your upbringing. So you're growing up in a, a small area, a small area or. Uh, town or whatever you would call it. Um, but there's right. tremendous substance. There's tremendous quality of people. What are some values that you took with you from that community, from your family uh, that that's, have stuck with you today?
1: Yeah, I think um, it's a great question. So um, I remember my mom to this day. And it's funny, I use this with my kids too. Like she She basically wouldn't allow us to use the word can't. Right. You hear somebody say, oh, I can't do this. And she would she would literally like just stop the conversation and say, no, we don't use that because you can do it if you if you work and put your mind to it. You can do it. I mean, it sounds very simple, um, but, you know, just an environment of of, of really hardworking um, people, you know, put a lot of time in it. My parents are, are truck drivers and, you know, just really gritty and working hard. And so, put a lot of time and energy into working as hard as you can uh, towards, you know, perceived goals, but also have a growth mindset where if you can't do something, it's not failure; it's a puzzle, and how do you figure it out? And that's where the, you know, the word that she wouldn't allow us to use, "can't." Uh, my kids get a kick out of that now, but but because uh, I try to use it on them, and they they'll say stuff like, "Dad, I can't can't use can't," you know, oh, so. Yeah, they get me. But anyways, so but uh, you know, in our in our family and in the environment too, um, from a value standpoint, a, a lot of a lot of honesty, a lot of loyalty, um, and a lot of hard work. You know, our, our high school coach used to say all the time, "There's no crossroads of honesty and loyalty." Hmm. So I thought was pretty interesting. So it was that kind of environment. You know. Um, do what you are supposed to do, take care of your business, work hard, and anything's possible if you really want it and you really work at it.
0: Yeah, I call them the apostrophe T's. Can't, don't, won't. So maybe you just just go with the apostrophe T. So when they say can't, all right, let's go to won't. Let's go to don't. And I always say, replace them with can, do, will, uh, and and get rid of the apostrophe T. Um, Right. But yeah, growth mindset, I know we've talked about this in the past. Um, For those that don't know, Carol Dweck, uh, coined this idea of growth mindset. It, there's a book called Mindset, which is a great read. Uh, one of the things I want to ask you about is, all right, so let's use growth mindset. So growth mindset, for those that don't know, I think of it, the best way to explain it to people is it's adding the yet. So I can't dribble with my left hand would be fixed mindset. I can't dribble with my left hand yet would be a growth mindset. Uh, so this notion that we're constantly growing, we're constantly evolving. Versus we're sort of set in stone, our talent, our intelligence is what it is. Um, But one of the things I'm curious as a college basketball player, and then as someone who's been around a lot of professional athletes, where does the fixed mindset come in? Because one of the things I've seen is, okay, growth mindset is massive for acquiring intelligence or acquiring skill. And I think a lot of pro athletes have that growth mindset and they're constantly developing and getting better. But there's also something that takes place when they step on the floor to compete. A lot of them are fixed in their mindset at that moment where I know what I can do well. I know I'm a shooter. I know I'm a rebounder. I know I can get to the rim at will. And I believe that that is what I am and that's what I'm capable of. And they almost use affirmations to say, I'm the best player on the floor. I'm the best shooter in the world. I am, um, it's almost fixed in a way. So one of the things I often talk about is your mindset for preparation being different than your mindset for performance. So yes, we want to be growth-minded in preparation, but the moment we're stepping on the floor to compete, we need to know who we are and what we bring to the table. And we need to believe that that is set. Like we are good to go. And what, what we have is enough and, and we're capable and competent. So I'd love to hear you riff on sort of my theory on taking a Stanford professor who's way smarter and way more accomplished than me <laughs> and, and just being contrarian and challenging some of the notion there that the situation and the circumstance matter. So if we just have a growth mindset all the time, I believe we might not be at our best because we're just constantly focusing on getting better rather than just, being. So like becoming versus being is, is a mm. dynamic that I'm, I'm really intrigued by. So I know I throw a lot your way. So I'd love mm-hmm. to hear you just riff on that and, and just give your perspective.
1: Well, you and Carol Dweck are way out of my league. I, I don't belong in that conversation at all. You, you two. Uh, but you know, being around pro athletes at a high level um, really successful ones for a long time, you know, there's this awesome, Combination of um, confidence and humility, and so I don't know that I can go down the road of, um, you know, it's a fixed mindset when you practice a particular skill in a game, because maybe you couldn't get to that skill if you didn't have a growth mindset before. So I mean, maybe this is chicken and the egg thing here, but most the really successful. People that I've been around have a, have this, like I said, unique combination of confidence and belief in what they can do, but also are really humble and um, have a care for others about them. Not everybody, right? I mean, there's there's guys that have played in the NBA and NFL and other that, you know, are just, you know, as people would call them just assassins, right? Um, but for the most part, you see really successful people that have that combination and something else they have, which I think goes along with growth mindset, is they're really curious. They're just curious about life and they ask a lot of questions and they read and they're constantly consuming information and they're constantly thinking about things. Um, and I, I mean, I can't think of many players that I've, I've been around, um, whatever their level of success is and coaches, That don't have those three things as a baseline, like humble, confident, and just really curious. Um, When you look at when you look at players that are curious about not just life, but you also see how they get better, you know, because they put in the time about asking questions and seeking out people that can help them, and you know, and they're not worried about whether they're right or wrong or their success successful or they are they fail or they're worried about just it's a puzzle for them how do i get better at this and then once they put in that time to get it better at that at that puzzle obviously in a game situation which i agree it's hard to kind of have that growth mindset in the game i mean you want to fulfill the role that you you have in a game and for the most part um somebody really 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 smart said this one time and i think this kind of fits what you're talking about I it was really good it's like players on bad teams um, don't know their roles. Players on average teams know their roles. Players on great teams embrace their roles. I, I think that's pretty good. And so when you get into a game situation, if you're a shooter, then you really embrace like, okay, I'm going to shoot the ball. I'm not going to go to try to dribble and, and get in the lane and create offense. That's not my job. So, um, you know, I think there's a there's a difference there. That doesn't mean somebody that just does one thing in the game, uh, you know, is, isn't is going to be uh, curious or have a growth mindset away or off the court.
0: Yeah, I so there's, there's a lot to unpack there that I love. Uh, the first thing I'll do is, uh, so humble enough to pre- prepare, confident enough to perform. Uh, Tom Coughlin, uh, who's, who wrote a, a good book called Earn the Right to Win, uh, talks about that in his book. And it's actually the impetus for me going down this path of like, Oh, our mindset for preparation should probably be different than it is when we're performing. And and like in my mind, if we are humble in preparation, that gives us the right to be confident in performance. Um, Because we are more competent at what we do because we've done the humble preparation. So I agree with you, like humble and confident. That mixture is awesome. And when you find an athlete that has that, uh, it's terrific. And, I would argue that I don't want to be confident in preparation and humble when I'm performing. Like I don't think if I'm confident when I'm preparing, it looks something like this. Yeah, I'm good. I don't need to practice my free throws or I don't need to work on my left hand. Like I'm good. I like I, I know how to do that. I believe in it. But I'm not necessarily increasing my competence if I take on that approach. And if I'm humble in performing, that might look like no. I'm you know what? I'm going to defer. I'm going to pass the ball or I'm going to you know what? I'm not maybe. I need to get better at defending rather than I believe I can defend. And so that's at least how I think about it. Obviously, it's from my own perspective and my own view. But I find a lot of athletes that are good with the humble preparation, I should I should actually shift that. A lot of pro and college athletes, so I would call them elite athletes, are good with humble preparation. Where a lot of them struggle is the confident performance. Um, and I think part of that is because – Great high school coaches, great college coaches will embed a humble preparation into their guys. I think sports in general, we make people practice like they don't just I won't go to a high school gym and find a player just not practicing like they have to practice and they have to go through that process. And same with college, like those systems are set up to get guys humble, but they don't always do a great job of instilling confidence in those players. I should shift that as well. They don't always teach them the fundamentals of confidence, which is how do I talk to myself? How do I, what's the dialogue I'm having with myself to believe in myself? And I find a lot of pro athletes and college athletes that I interact with that are really successful. The dialogue that they have with themselves is similar to what your mom was instilling in you. It's no, of course I can do this. Yeah, I'm good. I've got this. I'm capable of doing whatever I put my mind to. Um, So That dynamic is is a really intriguing one that I I just think is is really interesting. And the other thing you talked about with with role clarity goes back to the conversation we were having earlier, where the commonality between Belichick and Carroll would be that they are going to communicate exactly what they expect of their players. Um, And there's not going to be a whole lot of gray area. And I think communication is so important when we talk about teams and when we talk about leadership, because if you can't communicate the players are going to be really confused and I've seen it and I'm sure you've seen it at different levels where there's not that clarity and there is clutter and a cluttered athlete. uh, It's very hard to be successful when you're cluttered and I don't care how physically strong you are, mentally strong you are. If you start to become cluttered, it it, performing becomes very, very difficult. Um, I want to go back to uh, your time in college because it sounds like you have this transformational coach, We didn't just transform you, but also transformed some other people around you who are now successful uh, professional basketball people. Um, What were the values that he instilled in you or that he used or what was the accountability like? Or just talk about that experience being a college basketball player and also being around these other people that go on to also have successful basketball careers.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, it's a great question. Um, And uh, coach Egan was very caring. He was really caring, but also very competitive. I mean, he wanted us to be, um, he wanted us to work and compete constantly, but you always, you always knew he cared about you and he cared about your teammates. And I think that was, I think that was a, you know, the combination of being, compare, being competitive and caring, I thought was, was, was really good. Uh, I mean, we were, it wasn't like it was, you know, this is Duke basketball and they're hanging, hanging banners every other year. Um, but going through that, you felt like you came through a successful program because of the people you're associated with. And, yeah, he was, he was competitive. He was caring. He's about hard work. He's about doing your job the right way, holding yourself to a high level of accountability. Not just for yourself, but for your teammates. Not letting your teammates down. So, he wanted to get the team to a point where he tried to push us as a group to a point where we could we were holding each other accountable. And if you can get a group of people to that level from a coaching standpoint, you've done a great job. And and there was times that we achieved that, and that, that was a, a that's what chemistry is right where the group is in sync with one another they hold each other accountable they believe in each other they have faith in one another when things are tough the group comes closer together versus going apart right everyone's like you know it's really hard to put your you you know group chemistry is really a difficult thing to understand and he used to say all the time you know what it is when it's not there which is true because nobody's usually when there's no chemistry people aren't happy so um you know through his discipline Competitiveness, caring, work ethic—he tried to bring the group together and have the group take ownership of its own of um, its own journey. And he was really good at doing that um, with individuals and with and with teams.
0: Is there anything specific that he would do to try to instill that uh, in 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 your guys?
1: You know, every group of team and every individual is always different, right? So, you know, that's what's really unique and ambiguous about (laughs) all of these, the topic of leadership and the topic of team chemistry and culture, um, because different situations require um, a different touch of a hand. And I think he was pretty good at that, um, understanding the different dynamics and how to push the group along. So, I mean, he was always very consistent in you know, you say the things that he that he would do. He's always very consistent in his values, which created a clear communication for us um, and a clear infrastructure that we knew where the lines were as a group and what our expectations were. You know, he wasn't constantly changing or moving things around, and so on and so forth. Very honest and very direct. Um,
0: but you have now you have two NBA head coaches. And, and you, Chris, who we haven't even started to get into, but you've been a general manager in the NBA, assistant general manager. Uh, you've worked for, for multiple organizations in front offices. Um, do you think you recruited you guys uh, because of your competitiveness and your caring? Or was that cultivated on campus?
1: I mean, I, I think I think a lot of it was cultivated there, but. I think he tried to recruit people that had some that had values that would fit into the same values at University of San Diego. And I know he just mentioned a few guys, but there's actually more. We had a dinner in Las Vegas this past summer for people that were associated with University of San Diego that have gone on uh, to work in some capacity in the NBA. There's 25 people there. It's crazy. It was it was incredible. It's the first time we've ever had the dinner. We're going to keep doing it in the future. But it was incredible to see some of the people that we didn't even realize. You know, you know, people from the state and New Orleans and Milwaukee and uh, so on and so forth. So it was, it was, it was great. It was, it was really good. But a lot of this has come from, from the likes of 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 Bernie Bickerstaff, uh, Coach Egan, uh, and all of us that kind of you know, we're, we're under, we're under coach Egan and under Bernie Bickerstaff. I mean, everybody from Greg Popovich to all the way down to David Fisdale and Mike Brown and Nick Urin, who's a a young coach behind the bench in Golden State. So uh, it's, it's really, it's really neat to see, quite frankly.
0: Well, and it might even go back to some of your high school coaches, the idea of loyalty, uh, the idea of honesty and integrity. It it sounds like those things that were embedded in you from a young age, then you have an organization that values that, or sorry, a, a college that, that um, loves that or values that. And then you have like-minded people that are competitive, so they're going to get to where they want to go. But they're also caring about the relationships that they have with others and maybe a loyalty to those people because they have shared values. Um, and when you have shared values, um, you can do great things. And you sort of talked about the idea of shared values. Um, so you're at San Diego uh, first of all, what position did you play football uh, in high school because uh, you're six foot eight so I'm thinking of certain <laughs> positions um, and then the decision to also uh uh to stick with basketball and what position did you play basketball and and just give us a little more background on on your athletic career and then I would love for you to transition us out of uh playing and into uh the rest of your journey
1: yeah. You know, just go back real quick. So the one thing that's interesting about you know colleges, you know, you're talking about having like-minded people go to the same same place. But I, you know, when you're a college kid, or when you're a high school kid, right out of high school, you're trying to pick a college. You know, I wanted I, I grew up in the cold. I wanted to go to I wanted to go to college on the beach. Like th- this is more luck than it is skill. Like you know, I, you know, sometimes when you're trying to figure those things out, you're just kind of lucky that you end up in the right environment. So. I mean, we could talk about it now. Like all these people did these wonderful things in this group, and blah blah blah. When some of that's true, but there's some luck involved here as well. Like all of us are very fortunate and uh, lucky from that standpoint. So well, I went to Syracuse, um, I
0: went to Syracuse University. So you better believe it wasn't the beach that was pulling me up there. And um, <laughs> I will tell you, and, and whatever, I don't really care if people think of me differently. Like I went there, and there were a lot of cute girls walking around campus, and it was a it was a beautiful spring day uh, at Syracuse, which when it's a beautiful spring day at Syracuse, you know, you get sundresses, skirts, and it's, it's like a different <laughs> campus. And I, uh, I'm i walking around, and I can see my parents, like, looking at me. First place they take you is the Carrier Dome. So I walk in the Carrier Dome. I look, I look at my dad, and my mom's looking at both of us like, are you freaking kidding me? Like, this is how you're going to make your college decision? And then the second piece – is it's beautiful out in Syracuse. It's nice. The weather is great. And my parents are just telling me over and over again, Brian, it's not usually like this. It's usually snowing and terrible and cold and windy. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I, I, think, I think of my experience and what I decided on for a college campus, and I would imagine going to San Diego for college, there were things that impacted you uh, that maybe did not have to do with a book or a basketball. Um, you know. I, but but I, I get it. Um, and as you said, a high school, high school version of me uh, might have been a little different than, than <laughs> what I am today. But, heck, to your point. I think, look, luck, I hear you. Look, I don't think anybody that's successful would say that luck didn't play a factor in their success. So uh, I think 100% I'm lucky to be talking to you right now, period, point blank. Um, But there's also environment and culture and and situation that that plays a role. And I think of my time at Syracuse, like the people I ended up becoming friends with, the people I ended up associating with um, are great great humans and are doing great things because there were shared values and I gravitated toward the, toward them. Now I wasn't playing basketball at Syracuse. uh, Make no mistake about that. Um, So it's different because you sort of chose uh, a, a, it's a forced group of people that you had to hang out with, but I'm sure there was also a draw when you go and visit the kids that are on that team and they, you felt connected to them and then uh, a draw to the program there. Uh, So I do think that there's probably some sort of environment that gets cultivated there that's drawn there just like duke basketball like you mentioned duke look there's other really really successful programs that have that win but there's a certain type of kid that goes to duke um that's just different and that's not to say that there's a a type of kid that goes to kentucky that's different or kansas or or whatever big north carolina it's not to say that those aren't great environments but they're right for some people and maybe not right for other people. That's why people transfer schools. So I'm doing a lot mm-hmm. of talking. I want to go back to finding out what position you played <laughs> and, and and what you're like with football pads on. As Chris mentioned, he's six foot eight and uh, <laughs> you know, he's not an offensive lineman, six foot eight. And maybe he was back in the day. I don't know, but uh, talk about football and then and basketball and, and just give us an idea of what your mindset was like in both those sports as well.
1: Yeah. Uh, in football, I uh, played a lot of positions growing up, but probably where I was most successful was tight end. Um, you know, big blocker and with with decent hands. So just throw the ball high in high school games, and I try to jump up and catch it and fall over all over myself, uh, which was fun. I, I enjoyed I enjoyed playing um, uh, at the position and and had a lot of fun catching balls over a course of three or four years playing playing high school football and then uh you know in college i i basically played the same position as football except i didn't get to touch the ball i just basically (laughs) got rebounds and set screens and block people uh that was that was i was more of a power forward um in college and not one of the scorers on the team one of the role guys defend rebound run set screens um which was fine i enjoyed the enroll i had i had a few scoring outbursts so i can show my kids box scores and try to tell them that I was a great scorer but uh, definitely was not that uh, you know more of a, more of a role player uh, in that environment which which was good I mean we had we had good some good teams we didn't you know go deep into the institute tournament or anything like that but we had um, we had a, a sense of joy and success as part of being part of a team uh, in, in in college at University of San Diego so uh, those are the positions, not overly exciting, but uh, part of the job.
0: And then you transition out of playing, and what do you do when you graduate?
1: Yeah, when, when I was done graduating, when I finished graduating, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I thought I wanted to work in an athletic department, like as an athletic director. And so I I had some opportunities to go play internationally at a pretty low level, which actually sounded fun. Um, but instead I decided to go to grad school, uh, there at university of San Diego and worked in the athletics department. while, you know, like internships while I was in grad school to try to figure out what I was going to do. And in the midst of that, uh, Mike Brown, um, was a video coordinator with the Denver nuggets at the time. This was 95, 96, probably somewhere in there. And, uh, he called and said, Hey, do you want to come out and be an intern for the summer? This was when I was in grad school in between grad school was two years. So in between those two years, I said, yeah, it'd be great. So I went out there. There was actually a lockout uh, or my, I don't know if it was a lockout or strike that year during that year. Uh, so I went out there for the summer. It was a slow summer. We actually uh, drafted Antonio McDice with the nuggets, but I went out there and just was an intern for, for the summertime. And it was like, Oh, this is exactly what I want to do. I want to work in the NBA. And it became very clear for me. Came back, finished grad school, and in the midst of finishing grad school, t- try to develop a bunch of relationships uh, in the NBA. At that point, Coach Egan had gone on to be an assistant coach for the Spurs. Obviously, Mike Mike Brown and Bernie Bickerstaff were at were at Denver, so I was just trying to develop relationships around the league, you know, through phone calls and writing cards and letters, and just being really persistent. I almost had like a, I had a checklist of like. Every time I call someone or send them the um, uh, – I don't even know if I send emails, but handwritten cards to people um, to try to get an opportunity in the NBA.
0: Uh, A couple of thoughts. One, I had someone else on this podcast earlier who's an actor, and he talked about he keeps an Excel spreadsheet of everyone that he's ever talked to. So your checklist might have – um, morphed into uh, a spreadsheet in, in a couple years later. But it's interesting that you guys had a similar process because he knew exactly. He knows exactly what he wants to do. And then the second question I had, or that was a comment, but the question I had was, at that point, are you thinking you want to coach or are you thinking you want to be in a front office?
1: I, I, I just wanted to be in the NBA. Like the the concept of working in the NBA, being around basketball, being around pro sports, I, at that point I wasn't sure. I, I just wanted to get in the door There wasn't as many internships as there are now. I mean, there might've been 10 interns in the NBA in total. And I think today there's probably somewhere between two to three per team. So I was really fortunate. I went in as, um, a video intern and, and for the Atlanta Hawks. And, but the staff was small. There was basically the head coach. I think there was three assistant coaches. I'm trying to remember. Yeah, I think there was Lenny Wilkins was the head coach. There was three assistant coaches, and then there was me. So I did the video. I was lucky. I did the video, um, video breaking down the film for the for the team. Uh, I did the laundry after the game so I could make extra money. Um, and then I also wrote all this, the advanced scouting reports. So it was a lot of work to do, but I was actually extremely lucky i got to do it all because i got to learn a lot more than i probably would have today
0: yeah in some ways the perfect internship is when you're at a place that's pretty uh bare uh, or pretty skeleton in, in, in what they have going on so that you can just do a bunch of things i think when i i meet with college kids all the time and they're always looking for a great internship and i'll never forget uh i had an internship my junior year of college the year after our paths crossed um But the internship was with a real estate company. And I remember I was working alongside this guy who was really running a very successful real estate company. And I remember saying to him like, oh, yeah, my friend has a great internship. And I remember him asking me, well, what makes it great? I was like, oh, well, he's making X dollars a month. And he was like, oh, well, like, what's he doing? (laughs) And I think at that time, that's sort of how you value your success of the job is like, you know how much money you're making or whatever it might be. And even like the first job out of college or the second job, like when you're 22, 23 years old, you're thinking like, that's a good, how you value a good job. And I would go back to that internship and it was an amazing experience because I was sitting in the room with these two guys who were real big real estate people in New York. And I just got to sit there and observe. And um, I think a lot of like advice that I'll give to younger kids is like, go get an internship where you can do a lot of things and learn what it is that you don't like and learn what it is that you do like and what you're interested in and what you're good at and what maybe you're not so good at. And I think a lot of times we teach our kids to just go for the prestige or go toward the money. And, you know, if you're, if you're in college or even high school or, or right out of college, like the best jobs are the ones where you learn. Um, and so, back to the growth mindset thing. I do think being growth minded when you're younger is, is massive uh, for your success. Um, So you're in Atlanta and um, walk us through what transpires for, for the years after that.
1: Yeah. So in Atlanta video coordinator, uh, I think it was an intern video intern. Maybe I I don't exactly remember, Um, you know, and then just really lucky the organization was somewhat successful Uh, and I think in pro sports, when you're young, like that, and you're trying to learn if you're in a stable environment, that's helpful. Um, you know, the team was pretty good, pretty stable environment, and there was room for, for growth. So I basically, uh, was very fortunate to be around really good people again. And went from, you know, being a video intern to the full-time video coordinator, and then maybe a year later I was on the road doing advanced scouting. Uh, and then maybe I think a year or two after that, I was then, um, actually right around that, that time, uh, I was deciding, do I want to go into coaching? Do I want to be in the front office? And some of it, you don't really decide the, the situation kind of dictates itself. At that time, there was a coaching change and Lenny Wilkins was let go and Lon Kruger came in and he brought in a whole new staff. And I think I probably could have stayed as the advanced scout kind of moving up the ladder to maybe be. Uh, an assistant coach, but at that point there was an opening in the front office as like the assistant director of scouting. And I, I still wasn't sure which way I wanted to go. I I had been basically on the team side coaching side the entire time to that point. Um and then I, and it was it was a big opportunity on the front office side. So I went that direction. Um still not sure I would be there forever because I I started on on the coaching side and was really excited about that. Um but I like you know I like both. So I went over to the assistant director of scouting. Gary Wharton was the director of scouting um, for a long time. Pete Babcock was the GM, uh, and just kind of worked over there in that environment for a couple more years. Um, you know, moving up to vice president and assistant GM before I left to go to Cleveland.
0: You hit on something that's so relevant, which is like I just knew I wanted to be in the NBA, and I was going to yeah. find a way to add value and and be good at what I do. And I think a lot of people want to say, hey, this is my vision. This is what I'm going to do. And they don't adapt or adjust to what the situation or the circumstance calls for. And by the way, I think athletes are the same way, right? Like you may have a way of doing it, but – if the team needs you to be a shooter or set screens or that that's the way you can add value to the team, you need to be able to adjust while still having belief that you're capable of going of of the vision that you have for yourself. And I think the ability to pivot and adjust is massive. So you have a pivot there and there's an opportunity now to be in a front office. And back then the front offices aren't that big, right? So you're now having access to the GM on a, on a regular basis, daily basis, and you're in the weeds of it. Um, and so I would imagine that pivot probably ended up turning out uh, to be a pretty good pivot. So you you leave Atlanta and you get to interact with me when I used to have a lot of hair. So <laughs> those that don't know, uh, I did telemarketing with two of my best friends when we were sophomores in college. We moved down to Atlanta for the summer and we would just hammer out calls every single day. And uh, this is a real testament to Chris. You know, Chris is the assistant GM at the time. You know, it's the middle of the summer, so it's a pretty busy time for these guys. They are you know, preparing for the draft and, you know, signing free agents. And Chris would pop his head in the room where the guys are doing telemarketing. It's probably one of the less sexy jobs that is in a, uh, in a organization. And Chris would just come in and he'd say, guys, if you need me to jump on the phone, let me know. If you need me to sell some tickets, just let me know. Like I'm here and we're going to try to fill this arena um and you know I'm, I'm here to help and i had long hair at the time because that's what you do when you're in college and i don't know if i had my little chin goatee or not the little dirt on my chin um but chris would call me luke jackson uh who, who played in the nba and i think he had just been like a first round pick out of oregon uh because luke had a bit he had big hair and he would call me luke jackson i looked nothing like luke jackson i think his hair was more brownish or blondish and i'm definitely not six foot six uh with the stroke that luke had um or athleticism uh for that matter um but he would just hey what's up luke how you doing uh but but it's a testament to chris cultivating relationships and um treating everyone with that honesty that loyalty and and that respect and and also just saying hey if you need anything i'm here to help and uh, something that always stuck with me is, uh, someone who made time. And I think a lot of people just say, Hey, I don't have time for stuff. Uh, and you were able to make time for people. And, and for us, that made us feel special that you would peek, peek your head in and actually care about us because otherwise we're just on the phone talking to people and getting hung up on, you know, every single, <laughs> every single day. So, um, so that, that's a testament to you. You go to Cleveland, you're the assistant GM there. Um, you know, you're, you're with the team with obviously great success and um, high aspirations and expectations. Um, and then you become the general manager in Cleveland. Uh, so I want to just find out the difference for you between being an assistant general manager, which you did in Atlanta, um, and you also do in Cleveland, to being the general manager and what that what that's like from you from a mindset standpoint and what shifts need to take place um, for you when now it's your face, now it's, you know, just walk us through what that shift is like for you um, from a, from a mental standpoint.
1: Yeah. You know, it's a great question. You you hear coaches or GMs or people that, you know, they always, you always say, you know, you slide over 12 inches the other way into the other seat and things are different. And I, once again, I, I was really lucky to work with really good people and smart and, you know, help me go a long way. But I think when you slide over to that seat, you know, I think everybody wants that, right? Like, if you're ambitious, and I certainly was ambitious moving up through the ranks, you know, you're excited for the opportunity to try to put something together and um, and to be part of a, you know, be part of a group and help lead a group and the energy of that group. But when you, when you slide over, you know, there's an old saying, like, you don't really feel it until you lose sleep at night. And you, as an assistant coach or assistant GM, you definitely can You, – I've been there. You can definitely – Feel it, lose sleep at night. But when you slide over to the to the um, to the general manager seat or the head coach seat, you know you just have such a greater sense of responsibility for the people, um, and it isn't. It's not about um, the the title or the position. It's more about how do you put or help people uh, be successful. Because really, the organization is going to be successful based on the group of people that you bring together and how much you can help them be successful in whatever their role and job is. And in pro sports, what's really interesting is all that's played out publicly. Right. Um, which really creates a lot of unique dynamics. Um, and sometimes in pro sports, um, because it's, it's right there in front of you, it's a fantastic leadership study. You know, it's hard to like look at a big business, uh, and say, okay, what's going on there internally. A lot of times in sports, you can see what's going on internally for the most part, uh, or see players and how they connect out on the floor. So I think when you move into that seat, there's just an awesome responsibility to, to people and to the organization, um, and to try to bring those people together and put them in a position to be successful. When you do that, then you create greater success, whether it's players, coaches, front office individuals, um, And you feel that, and I think it takes a little time once you get into that seat to recognize that and to learn how to lead from that position. A lot of times as you're making your way up through the ranks, you're responsible for um, different tasks, right? Like, okay, you're in charge of the draft or you're in charge of free agency or you're in charge of player development. Well, there's, there's different processes and tasks that you can build around those things. When you get to the GM and head coaching position, you're obviously responsible for those things, but you're responsible more so putting people in position to lead those things and bring the group together. So, you know, you're you're now the guardian of the values and the vision and the culture and making sure those things can come together so everyone can be successful.
0: We mentioned transformational and transactional leadership earlier, but we didn't mention servant leadership. And as I hear you describe what your job was as a general manager. And I hear you describe what a head coach's job is in a lot of ways. It's to be a servant, to serve the people, to serve the responsibility, to serve the city, whatever it might be. And I would imagine if we go back to that Carol and Belichick uh, analogy, they're both servant leaders. They're there to serve uh, the community, the the team, ownership, uh, the players, uh, their staff, like – you're in a position where you really have to serve those people. And like you said, that, that can show itself in a lot of different ways. Would you classify it as servant leadership? Would that be a, a fair way to encapsulate it? Uh,
1: yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that word and concept, absolutely. Um, Coach Egan used to say to us all the time, what's the definition of leadership? You know, we would we already knew the answer, but we let him go through his thing. So, And the answer was to serve, right, to help people to care about them, to, to put them in a position to succeed. So, yeah, I think that concept um, of servant leadership definitely is a, is a big piece, right? Because um, groups are not successful because they have this, you know, as, as my leadership, uh, my master, I have master's in leadership and one of the professors used to say, um, which I thought was pretty good. Like, in the industrial sense of leadership there's not like this one authoritarian dictator who just stands up in front of everyone and says okay we're going to be successful do this you know that's not leadership and he, he would classify it as um industrial post-industrial you know this post-industrial like teamwork bringing groups together being caring being competitive uh, being inclusive and so um those are more uh aligned with serving people to help people be successful.
0: Awesome. And you've been around now all kinds of successful coaches. Uh, so I'd be remiss to not ask you about what are shared traits that you see from the coaches you've been around? I mean, you think about, you've probably thought about this, like some of the coaches that you have served or worked alongside, I mean, there are, I, I, like I can rattle them off in my head right now. And there are guys who are still NBA coaches um, who you've been around uh, you know, I'll just name a few for the listeners. Uh, certainly Greg Popovich, you you work with the Spurs now. Uh, you've got David Fisdale, who's with the Grizzlies, Terry Stotts, who's who's out in Portland. Um, I'm probably missing, I mean, the, you could probably tell me there's probably a, a bunch of other people who you have interacted with um, that I'm not, uh, You know, you know, Mike Brown is a top assistant with Golden State. I mean, there's, you you rattled off some of them mike woodson is you know is there larry drew i mean there's there you think about the guys who you have been connected to and and watched. i'm just curious what are the similarities that you see in those on those elite coaches um and it doesn't even have to be leadership per se it can just be like what makes them great at what they do yeah
1: it's a great question, and I've been very fortunate. It's a good question. You know, I think obviously, um, you know, mentioned a lot of great guys, a lot of really good coaches. Uh, I think most most of the people that I've seen that are highly successful in their their areas, you know, they're really curious. They want to learn. Uh, they're curious not just about their sport, but about their about the world. They're also very curious about their sport and like how can I do things better you know, cause you tend to teach what you know. So the more that you can, you know, go learn from different coaches, you know, I love these stories about you hear about coaches going to spending time in Europe or in different sports and just learning how, um, there's different ways to do things. And I think we have some great coaches in pro sports right now that are really like along those lines. So I think all these people are really curious. They're very humble. Um, they're very competitive. You know, it's it's competitive nature, right? You got to be competitive. Um, they're very confident in 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 their beliefs. That doesn't mean at times that people you don't go through times where you're not sure. But there's a there's a belief that they can they can get whatever they're trying to accomplish done. And I do think there's a combination there of discipline because um, you know you think about an NBA season, 82 games, preseason playoff. There's a discipline there, and there's a pace that you. Uh, as a leader, um, leading people, you have to keep your group on task. And same in, same in the NFL, same in, in baseball, is even more. But there's a discipline about leadership, whether it's accountability or whatever it may be, that has to be in part of what you're doing to be successful. You can't turn it on and turn it off. It's got to be something that you believe in and engage on a daily basis.
0: You mentioned curiosity before too. So just to wrap up the curiosity thing, there's science that backs this up. I mean, there is science that shows that curiosity is one of the best indicators for success. Um, so I think that's a word that you've said multiple times. And I think you're spot on with that. Uh, and then I, I do think the self-belief component is, is something that we have to continue to think about. How can we cultivate that in, in the people that we're around? How do we help them believe in themselves? Cause we often say uh, coaches need to instill confidence into their players And I always question that. I say, no, they need to teach their players how to instill confidence into themselves. Um, Because the hardest part about coaching or being a general manager is you can do great work. At the end of the day, they decide if the ball is going in the hoop or not. (laughs) You do not get Mm -hmm. to dictate it. And I think the hardest part of being a coach or being in front office is you can do a great job and put to do everything the right way. But at the end of the day, you really don't get to control your own destiny because the players have a lot more control over that destiny than a coach or general manager does. So it's interesting because I find that a lot of those people are high on control. Like they like having control yet uh, they're in positions where they just really lack control. Um, once the game starts and sure they can sub people in, they can you know run a system and they can do certain plays. But at the end of the day, a player gets to dictate the outcome of a game more than anybody in those in those. If you talk about players, coaches, and front office, um, mm-hmm. so the, the last thing I want to pick your brain on is just culture, which is something we haven't we, we've talked about it, but not in a, a specific way. Uh, how do you think about culture and, and cultivating culture? And um, once again, look, you are at the San Antonio Spurs right now. Uh, I was talking to somebody yesterday. We were. We were playing golf and we literally were talking about the Spurs culture and you know this isn't a basketball guy and he literally said yeah like if I look at pro sports over the last 10-20 years the Spurs um are to are the definition of success when you think about culture uh and that's from the outside looking in so um and, and you don't have to necessarily talk specifically about the Spurs if you want to you can but you now are privy or to be on the inside and see like of of from the outside looking in a masterpiece when it comes to culture and accountability. And and by the way, they don't always win championships. And like, I think that's a misconception is that you have to win a championship to be successful. Um, but I think the consistency of, um, culture from the outside looking in of the Spurs and, and the other team that I think of in pro sports is the Patriots, uh, maybe the San Francisco giants, uh, in baseball, but you're there. Um, what is it about culture that can impact a team and what kind of culture do you see being the most successful and i know it's kind of a loaded question but riff on it as best you can
1: yeah no it's, it's a good question you know um without getting too much into any particular teams I, I i think sometimes the word culture and values get mixed up like they're not clearly defined you know i think in I was really lucky when I wasn't working for any teams, I I traveled around to a bunch of different sports teams and I would just ask them questions like, what are your values? You know, and some teams had a very clear picture of what their values were and some teams didn't. And the teams that had a very clear picture of what the values were had good culture. And so that kind of led me to the belief of like studying this thing a little bit was if you have strong values that you live, um, consistently that are real, that aren't just something words you throw up on the wall. And, and that this isn't just sports, but this is business too. Like, you're like, Hey, here's our new value system put on the wall and everybody's going to do this. No, that's, that's not, that's not, it's not the, the fashion in which it works, but if you have strong values that you follow that supports or in turn creates a culture that people want to be part of. I, I, I kind of think culture is like the water in the pool that you swim in. And you know the values are the, the structure holding up the pool so if you've got strong values you're probably going to have good culture and people are going to want to be part of that culture but i think clearly defining what those two things are is pretty important and i think the good teams some of which you have mentioned and probably businesses as well they're really good at defining what those things are and so once you're able to define what those things are then whether you, when you hire people or you make decisions or Whatever it may be, you can follow those values, which and if they're followed, they'll instill that you
0: have good culture. I love that. And uh, to me, that just crystallizes it because everyone talks about culture. It's like every organization says, yeah, we're going to have a great culture. We're going to develop our players like, and we're going to win, right? Like the formula for success, great culture, develop and win. Yet you, you pull back the onion a little bit and you notice that they don't necessarily have great culture. They don't necessarily have shared values and, and clear values, and they're not necessarily doing much to really develop their guys. Um, and so I agree. I think we use this word culture and it gets watered down. Uh, and the way you just presented it, which I think is great, and I'm going to steal it and run with it, is like we say we want to win. OK, everybody wants to win. What's your process for winning? And you have to cultivate that process We could say trust the process, but what is the process right like that matters the how matters. Um, the what is what everybody says the what is we want to have great culture, but what are the values? how are you going to develop the culture and and to your point and then making those values non-negotiable in the sense of like you know we are going to stick to these values because it's what we believe in uh, and and we are these values are are are, are set like these are a set form of values that we believe in. And we believe that if we have these values, then it'll drive the culture. And I think both winning and culture are outcomes uh, that are a result of values and process. And so um, we often talk about winning and culture when we really need to talk about, all right, what are our values and what's our process? And by the way, you can adjust values and you can adjust process. Um, There's nothing wrong with it. Uh, But I think you're so right. There's so many organizations that I'm involved with that have a mission statement and then I don't see them live that mission statement at all. Um, but it's yeah. on the wall. Um, so uh, maybe that's what we'll wrap with is like – and it's something that I think everyone can think about that's listening is like what are your values individually? Uh, what are your values that you care most about? Uh, and how are you intentional with bringing those values to the forefront? Uh, and I think, Chris, you talked about values, whether it was grittiness, work ethic, curiosity, uh not having can't in your vocabulary, right? There are certain values that you have tried to live and then pass down to your kids. And I know for me, people will always ask me like, Hey, what did your parents do to help raise you and your brothers? And they often think that I'm going to talk about, well, we were really focused on winning or making money or being successful. And I always, it always came back to character for me, like being a person of character and living, a life of character and integrity, which is a word you used also earlier from your upbringing. And I think those are values and that were passed down to me and my brothers. And my brothers, are we're, we're all different with how we live our life, but there are shared values that I think exist, including self-belief. Um, so uh, that's a great way to sort of end, which is asking the people that are listening, what are your values from an individual standpoint? And then if you are fortunate enough to cultivate a culture uh, in an organization that you're involved with, how clear are you with the values that you're providing to the people that you interact with every day? And I think clarity of values uh, and process is, is so immensely important. And it often gets overlooked for culture and winning, uh, which I think are, are outcomes of values and process. Does that make sense, Chris?
1: yeah it, it does make sense and i think um you know when you you start to see like really successful organizations teams whatever it may be businesses you know you see this um or personal values um align with the, the group or business or team values as well and i i don't you said something interesting i don't know that values can change much mm. You know, I kind of think those are like your pillars. Um, I think if you're changing them often, I think, you you know, then you're not really standing for anything. I think once you establish your values, I think those have to – I think those need to stay in place Do you think for, cul- for a long time.
0: culture can change or is, is the culture predicated on values? So it's, it's – the culture will sustain itself based on the values.
1: Yeah, you know, it's a really – interesting conversation in probably another podcast but <laughs> um, I think culture does change whenever you add or either someone leaves the group or you add somebody new to the group because they're they're different so you have this you have this group of people that are if they have values that are aligned they're gonna hopefully produce a certain type of culture but if one of them leaves and someone different comes in, even though their values are similar that can change the group dynamic and culture. So, uh, you know, that's a, it's a, a, it's a great credit. There's probably a lot smarter people than, 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 than myself that have studied they, this, but,
0: yeah.
1: but, uh, it's a, it's a really interesting concept.
0: Well, let's, let's bookmark it and, and maybe we'll have it over lunch or, uh, maybe, uh, over another podcast some other time. Cause I think this stuff is really fascinating and, you know, you threw in that you got a master's in leadership, so it's clearly something you think about a lot and you're curious about it. And I love the fact that you went and traveled and, and tried to find out what other people are doing from a value standpoint and from a system standpoint or whatever it might be. Uh, so Chris, thank you so much for jumping on. Uh really appreciate it. Uh, is there anything that you want to promote uh, or, or, or send out there? <laughs> um, I, I don't think you're a big social media guy, but uh, I always <laughs> give my guests an opportunity to promote books or or anything that they feel obligated to promote and i'm just going to give you the last word and you can feel free to say whatever it is that you want to say
1: no brian i I, I, there's nothing that i want to promote i i appreciate the the time and the energy and the questions yes really good questions very thoughtful uh so i i appreciate that that and hopefully you'll have me on again and i didn't i didn't mess up your podcast uh ratings too bad
0: well, we'll find out. And if you did, then you're, you're never coming on again. And our, our, friendship, our friendship would just go right out the window because you know, it's not worth it then. So, uh, Chris, thank you so much. Appreciate the time. And uh, enjoy uh, the end of summer here and in, in the beginning of basketball season. I'm sure you're itching and excited for the season to get going.
1: Absolutely. Same to you, Brian.
0: Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem.
1: If you have strong values that you live, um, consistently that are real, that aren't just something words you throw up on the wall and, and that this isn't just sports, but this is business too. Like you're like, Hey, here's our new value system put on the wall and everybody's going to do this. No, that's, that's not, that's not, it's not the, the fashion in which it works, but if you have strong values that you follow that supports or in turn creates a culture that people want to be part of. I, I, I kind of think culture is like the water in the pool that you swim in. And, you know, the values are the, the structure holding up the pool. So if you've got strong values, you're probably gonna have good culture, and people are going to want to be part of that culture. But I think clearly defining what those two things are is pretty important. And I think the good teams, some of what you mentioned, and probably businesses as well they're really good at defining what those things are. And so once you're able to define what those things are, then whether you, when you hire people or you make decisions or whatever it may be, you can follow those values, which and if they're followed, they'll instill that you have good culture.